0: Welcome, everyone, to the Genetics Podcast, where we explore the latest breakthroughs in genetics and genomics. I'm really excited to be here today with Dr. Matt Hurls, who is the director of the Wellcome Sanger Institute, which if you're not familiar with it after interviewing probably a dozen or so people from either at the Sanger today or over the past couple decades, it's a world leading genomics research center located just outside Cambridge in the UK. Matt himself is a renowned researcher in the field of human genetics with more than 20 years experience, and he's contributed to a number of groundbreaking studies. I was fortunate enough to work very closely with Matt as a PhD student in his group on the Deciphering Developmental Disorders study, as well as a little bit on the 100,000 Genomes Project, and I think we're gonna talk about both today. And we're going to spend some time today delving into Matt's research over the past couple of decades at the Sanger. And I actually read well, I didn't read it. I scanned this PhD thesis. So I'm going to ask him a little bit about that. And I, as you all probably know, if you listen to this podcast, I did my PhD in Matt's group, and he's probably the single most responsible person for my interest in genetics, having spent about four years in his group. So I thought there'd be no better way to mark the 100th episode than to have Matt onto the podcast. So first of all, thank you, Matt so much for all your mentorship over the years and for joining me for this milestone episode.
1: No, thank you for having me. And I feel, you know, in a British sense, very embarrassed by that lovely introduction.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Uh, (laughs) As uh, reading American letters of recommendation versus British ones with American people, it's always the greatest student they've ever had, right? You have to run that through a lens.
1: Well, maybe the American take on your kind of introduction is, for God's sake, never do a PhD with that person. (laughs)
0: No, that's my British version of the introduction. (laughs) I read every word. So as I mentioned in the intro, I had a scan through your PhD thesis, which you submitted in 1999, which was just before the completion of the Human Genome Project. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that work was on, what the world of human genetics was like then, and then maybe we can fast forward to today of what's changed between when you completed your PhD then and the kind of work that you do now.
1: Yeah, well, back in the dark ages of genetics in the 1990s, so I did a very general undergraduate degree. I did biochemistry and so genetics was only a very small part of that, but I was fortunate enough to do an undergraduate project with a guy called Chris Tyler Smith, who was one of a very small group of people at the time who was using the human Y chromosome and the lineages of different human Y chromosomes to track human prehistoric migrations. And so I did an undergraduate project for a few months in in his lab, and I was really fascinated by the potential and the interactions and the integration of genetics with archaeology and linguistics. And I happened to meet his long-term collaborator, Mark Jobling, who was at the University of Leicester and became my PhD supervisor. So that really kind of took me from an undergraduate phase into genetics and evolution, which I was always interested in. But I, I guess it wasn't obvious to me that I would end up doing a PhD, but I kind of fell into it. So then with Mark, I got a great opportunity to kind of really dive into using the human-wide chromosome to track prehistoric migrations, especially through the Pacific and Polynesian ancestry and Melanesian migrations. And I found that really fascinating and it gave me a great opportunity to learn. And I've always liked opportunities to learn, but this gave me an opportunity to read linguistics and archaeology as well as the genetics. Think about computational approaches and statistical approaches as well as experimental approaches. But I was, you know, I started as an experimentalist and taught myself to program during my PhD, just because that was the only way I was going to be able to answer any of those questions. And so, yeah, the, the PhD was a fantastic time, and it really, you know, I, I owe a lot to Mark, my my supervisor, for giving me not just a fantastic education and a start, but also a kind of a real role model for, you know, having a good work life balance in science. And you know, Mark was in his early 30s when I started as a student, and he was, you know had a young family and, uh, and that, that really set me up well, I think, for the rest of my career.
0: This was actually something I was going to come back to at the end, but I, I think it's a good time for it. I know from working with you that you're a prolific gardener, cyclist. And one of the things that always stood out to me and others in the lab is that you struck a great work-life balance and you were not you know, expecting us to be at the office 12 hours a day, and you modeled that yourself. I, I was going to ask, actually, how have you always been that way? It sounds like Mark influenced you a lot, but do you have a sort of framework or a perspective on how to approach that for people who are in an intense career like, like research or life sciences more generally, where the temptation can always be to spend that extra hour or two to, to try to get ahead, but you end up staying on that hamster wheel if you do that every day?
1: yeah I get it's a it's a really good question actually, during my undergraduate project with Chris, I really got into it to a kind of unhealthy degree. I, I remember one time we had a our house Christmas party, and we had a Christmas dinner and we all cooked Christmas dinner together. And then I set my alarm for four o'clock in the morning to go in and do my experiment. and uh, And I just took a step back and I thought, this is crazy. you know this is this is not this is not a sustainable way of of working. And I was doing a lot of rowing at the time, and and i was i was burning a lot of energy but not finding time to eat so i was just losing weight and I, and and that that was a real kind of wake up call so i think i i my natural inclination is probably to go deep actually and 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 i had a a early enough bad enough experience that i kind of yeah. learned the lesson to to step back from that and then and then mark was you know hugely helpful you know, he was he or you know always left in time to bathe his young kids you know that was his thing and uh, and I thought that was a good way to work. And I and I and we shared a lab space with people working drosophila and they often had to come in at the weekend to to kind of, you know, knock over their flies and, and keep everything alive. And I, I resolved at that time that I should try and aim to do my science on clear colorless liquids that could be <laughs> put in a freezer over a weekend.
0: Yes, <laughs> my very first research experiment was working in a wind tunnel, like mathematical modeling group. And my second one was making nanoparticles. And in both of those cases, it was a real world thing that, you had to be on site to do it. And, and like you, I quickly figured out that I was better with computers and, and they could be run from anywhere and run overnight. So I think that's a good, that's, that's one good factor that you can control. I'm, I'm curious how you do prioritization. Is there a, is there a way that you figure out what you, what you choose to get done in a day or a week and what, what you push off to never do or what you ask somebody else to do? Cause I, I think Probably the number of things that you've been asked to do by your team, or that you want to do yourself, has nothing but increased every year, and you you've managed to keep that strike that right balance. Do you have a a system for how you do it?
1: Not really. I guess I, I have a thing which I I never work at weekends, and I aim to take holidays where I never look at email. Yeah, and those are kind of fairly red lines for me, and and so they they set some parameters, and I, and I think you know having over procreated and having three children, you know, gives you ample opportunity to say no in ways that people don't mind. So that that probably helps as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So shifting over to deciphering developmental disorders and some of the work that you started to do at the Sanger, can you talk a little bit about the origins of that project and some of the things you've accomplished with the consortium and the team over the last 10 years or so?
1: Yeah, sure. So it was really, it was the brainchild of, of Helen Firth, who's a a long-term co-leader of the of the project who is a clinical geneticist in cambridge who at the advent of of using arrays to pick up large deletions and duplications in patients and children with developmental disorders this is in the early 2000s she she realized that we now had these technologies to pick up these large changes in the genome but actually they weren't very well linked to How we knew you know what was in the genome it was quite hard to work out which genes were actually in the deletion at the time because the the genome had only just come out and and so she actually approached sanger to set up that something called decipher which is this database where clinicians around the world can deposit an interesting variant they think might be the underlying cause of disease and some anonymized phenotypic information that can help make matches throughout the world and that's been enormously successful over the last 19 years. There's over two and a half thousand papers that have come out of that, yeah. all generated by people, users of the cyber, rather than the people that actually developed it. And, uh, and I think that the initial role of that was to kind of take this new genomic technology, which at the time, time was the raise, and develop this international global data sharing kind of model to improve diagnosis. And, and a few years into that, it became obvious that what would really empower this is if there was a kind of uk-wide study that kind of put all the data together in a really consistent way and would be a and because at the time lots of different arrays were being used in different places with different depths of phenotyping and the idea that helen and nigel carter who was the, the faculty member at sanger who was driving this at the time that they had was let's have a big uk data generation project let's not just take in the existing diagnostic data Um, And so it started as an idea to work with all of the clinical centers in the UK and run high-resolution arrays to identify deletions and duplications at even higher resolution than could be done clinically, and then populate the cipher with this amazing reference data set. And then this was kicking off in kind of 2009, 2010, then exome sequencing became a reality, and we rapidly pivoted away from array technologies into sequencing. And the plan was to collect 12,000 families over the course of a few years. And we ended up overshooting quite a bit and hit 13 and a half thousand families eventually participated from, from 24 different centers um, across the UK and Ireland, over 200 different clinicians, essentially the vast majority of clinicians that, that, to see these children across those, those nations. And really it, it, it's been a, a kind of a learning process throughout this because at the time genomic medicine and the use of sequencing clinically was very much in its infancy. And so we had to build everything, as you know, from having you know been inside the, the sausage factory. You know, we had to build everything ourselves from, you know, the collection of the phenotypic data to the limb system to manage the tracking of samples, to the variant calling, to the, to the QC, to the clinical filtering. And so we spent a long time putting all these informatic pieces in place. And we really needed to do that because it was only really when we Could demonstrate value back to the clinicians of diagnoses that they couldn't make through other means that they really bought into the recruitment and then and recruitment really ramped up through the project.
0: Was it a difficult decision to go for exomes rather than arrays, or or could you all see pretty clearly that this was a a horse you wanted to ride or a rocket ship you wanted to get on at the time?
1: It it was pretty clear, but one of the nice things was we actually had quite a lot of array data that we'd collected anyway, and so that gave us a good opportunity to do side by side comparisons in quite large numbers of individuals. And it was quite clear that we, you know, when we looked at the first thousand families, the majority of diagnoses we were making just simply weren't visible to the arrays. They were, they were you know, SNPs and indels, and it was only through sequencing that we would find them. And and also that the kinds of disorders that we were picking up, the single gene disorders, which were often thought to have very specific clinically recognizable phenotypes, were being found in children who weren't obviously being suspected of those disorders. And it turned out that actually the phenotypes associated with those disorders was often significantly broader than had been
0: appreciated. That sounds like it was one of the big, maybe surprises from the start of the program to where we are today, right? Just how, how families with the same gene or even variant can have really quite heterogeneous phenotypes. Were there some other big surprises from the beginning to where we are today?
1: Oh, that's a very, that's a good question. I
0: think some of the surprises
1: were about just how much engineering of the healthcare system you have we was needed to be able to adopt these technologies. It seems on the face a it, quite simple mm. that you know one will just sequence all of the genes, including all of the known disease genes, identify variants, and feed them back to patients. But when one actually operationalizes that, the the informatics component is very non-trivial especially in the context of diagnostic laboratories, which often only had one or two bioinformaticians within them who were spending a lot of time generating Excel tables for clinicians to look at. And also on the, the validation side, because these were, this was a new sequencing technology, one had to use additional validation technologies to make sure that the, the, the variants were really there present in the individual's DNA. And actually, labs weren't used to the idea that they could be called upon to diagnostic labs, weren't used to the idea they could be called upon to validate essentially any variant in any gene. right so that that was that that I think was a a, a kind of quite a steep learning curve for, for those labs. um And, and so yes, yeah, so I think that that kind of even when something's demonstrably of benefit to patients and and there's no argument that actually the implementation is far from from simple and And I think that's why it's been fantastic to see Genomics England kind of set up and thrive because it really gives impetus to that implementation of genomic medicine in the
0: UK. Is yeah, How far are we towards solving that problem today? Because I think the evidence base for doing certainly exome sequencing and, and possibly arguably even genome sequencing, I'm interested to get your thoughts on that as a first line test for the vast majority of rare diseases. How far are we towards towards solving that problem of implementation in the healthcare system and is it a scientific problem anymore or is it more purely the operational informatics and maybe health economics problem
1: yeah i, I think a bit more the latter i don't think it's particularly a scientific problem I don't, I don't think anyone really is certainly not in in pediatric you know developmental disorders is really arguing about the scientific value of doing so it's really about the, the ability to integrate it into the system some you know even some things about the the ability to have a genetic diagnosis that persists in a kind of robust way in individuals medical records and you probably have a sense of this through sano that actually it can be quite difficult even when one has a a conclusive diagnosis it can also be quite difficult when very complex you know large genetic data is being interpreted by clinicians who maybe have less expertise in interpreting the data and the, the, the risk of misdiagnosis and how one protects against that, I think that's also a, a challenge. And one, one thing that I think is illustrative of, of the kinds of, of challenges actually one thing that we showed is the value of reanalyzing the, the same data a few years later. So the data hasn't changed at all, but you reanalyze it given what we now know about what genes are involved. Um, and you can identify substantial numbers of new diagnoses. And that's undeniably of a benefit to the, to the patients and their families to, to identify those diagnoses. But it's proven very hard to operationalize that within healthcare systems. You know how often should these be reanalyzed? who pays for the reanalysis? It's not kind of looked at in that in that mode where one uses the same data over and over again. And so I, I think as we look forward towards you know potentially everyone having genomes at birth and that genetic information being used throughout life, I think we're a long way from having the kind of health record systems that enable in a, in a robust and trustworthy way those kind of repeated queries of different kinds of questions.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree. If we do move to a world where everyone is being sequenced either at birth or in at some other age where it starts to become useful for detecting common diseases, how do you see human genetics changing at that point where it's almost industrialized? Most of the major sequencing projects of the 2010s and 2020s were academically led right but I was I was I thought it was an interesting moment when I was working in your group and you started to collaborate with GeneDx that they're a large commercial testing lab in the US and it seemed like they had very quickly grown to testing tens of thousands of families per year going going a lot faster than most academic research programs could and and likewise we see genomics england and the genomic medicine service really building it into the system what, what do you see as the role of the human genetics researcher changing in, in this new world?
1: Yeah, so I, I mean, I think it's, it's part of a bigger trend, which is that the, these large data commons existing and, and the actual generation of the genetic data is, is centralized and commoditized. But this often generates research platforms rather than research projects. And you still need the researchers to go in and, and derive value from the data. And I think that the key challenge that we have is we move from a world of research-generated data that's very international in scope, and we move towards healthcare-generated data, which is often much more national in scope. How we, given that we know we still have a lot to learn from how to interpret genomes, how do we make those, those data available in ways that patients and families are comfortable with so that those, that research can, can keep going? So then that's the, the beauty of genomics England and the value of collaborating with Gene is that those are healthcare paid for you know tests that are being used to then learn more and improve the results both for those individuals and for, for future patients. And that that kind of is really at the heart of a learning healthcare system. But, but to do so, to try and do so in a way that is democratic so it's it's you're you're opening up the data in a in a secure way to a research community rather than kind of blessed researchers you know who may or may not have the best ideas so yeah. I think the key thing there is you know so I, you know in the uk system for example you know tens or hundreds of thousands of arrays were run over the, the 15 years from you know in 2005 onwards but uh, but essentially zero have made them into the research domain um, other than the ones that have been deposited into Decipher as, as subsets. Whereas you contrast that with the whole genome sequencing being done by Genomics England, that's all in the in the research domain now, and it's accessible, but through a trusted environment. And the key thing there is, is when you have that trusted environment, you can also layer on top the longitudinal health record data. And so then that asks, allows you to ask all kinds of different valuable questions than, than you can if you've just got a tick box phenotype form that's your one-off attempt to To get some clinical information on the people that you sequence, so I think there's some real opportunities here in terms of enriching the kind of clinical phenotypic data, but also some real challenges around, you know, who provisions that infrastructure to make the clinical data available for research, and and what's the appropriate way to consent people who are in need of a clinical test to participate in research, and I I think those are those are two really important questions. But if we solve those questions, then potentially we're looking at a world where the data commons will expand massively. I mean, if one thinks about whole, a whole genome sequence for newborn screening, for example, you know, there's 600,000 newborns in, the, in England alone each year, that becomes standard of care, and there's an opportunity to participate in research. That very rapidly dwarfs all of the research projects in the UK that, we, yeah. that, that are you know, currently available.
0: I, I had an interesting discussion on a one of the previous podcast episodes with Kari Stephenson, Marilyn Ritchie, and Mark Effingham. And one of the questions I asked Kari was what he thought about saturation genome editing and some of these other like cellular approaches of trying to understand every variant in the genome. And and he had a really interesting response. I I, I was interested to get your thoughts on this because I think you have a foot in both of these worlds. You've done a lot of work in both large-scale human genetics, but also saturation genome editing the question i asked him was if if we were to test all six seven billion people on earth suppose we had whole genomes health medical records omics data kind of in the style of the uk biobank would that be enough to answer the vast majority of the questions that we have today about linking genes or variants to human disease or or is there actually some fundamental statistical problem that even if we tested everybody on earth, there would still be VUSs we couldn't resolve. There would be genes where we wouldn't know what they were doing. And therefore we need some of these higher throughput cellular type of models. I'm interested in your perspective on that, of whether whether something like newborn screening actually gets us to the next step change in knowledge of the genome, or actually if we need some of these other approaches to really link more in a higher throughput way.
1: So I, I think, I mean, in that in that thought experiment of, you know, if you had 8 billion genomes and linked clinical records, would that be enough? I think to a first approximation, the answer is yes. However, and I, I'll go into in a moment why I think that is, but then the, the the second part is, does that mean that we don't need things like saturation genome editing? And I think the answer to that is no, because I don't think we're going to have 8 billion genomes with linked clinical records soon. And the, the reason why it would work is because, you know, the, the mutation rates of the human genome is high enough that every single base change that's compatible with life is present in tens of individuals on the planet. And, and if we genuinely had sequenced all of those individuals, we would have pretty good power to pick up highly penetrant variants. We yeah. wouldn't have good power to pick up lowly penetrant variants or combinations of variants. So and certainly, and certainly combinations of recessive, you know, compound heterozygotes, we wouldn't have enough power with even with 8 billion individuals. So, so I think that. So, but but we're a long way off that, and so I think there is a real opportunity in the next ten years to use those saturation genome editing or those other multiplex assays of variant effect that generate maps of entire genes where every single variant is characterized. I think there is a real opportunity there. One of the things that we've kind of been able to show with our DDD data is that patients who come from single parent families or from families who have African ancestry are diagnosed less well. That, than patients who come in with DNA available from both parents and, and from European ancestry families. And part of the challenge of that is especially when you don't have DNA from both parents, you know, you, the, the haystack of potential pathogenic disease-causing variants is that much bigger. And our ability to interpret those variants is still, you know, small. So I think last, uh, last time we did the analysis, three-quarters of all the variants that we thought were clear diagnoses in DDD that was the first time that variant had ever been seen before. Wow. Uh, so, so if you imagine in the context of of you know seventy five percent of all diagnoses in singleton patients, where you don't have DNA for both parents, you can't use the fact that the variant has occurred de novo. It's a big challenge to interpret, especially those rare missense variants. And and I think the 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 groups that have the most benefit from having those those variant effect maps are the groups that are currently underserved most by by current clinical what we can currently do clinically. Um, I don't think there's no, there isn't overt discrimination in this sense, but it, but it just happens that the things that we use that work just work less well in the context of single parent families and and individuals with African ancestry.
0: And is this something that you see, how do you see these cellular assays getting integrated into like genome interpretation in the healthcare system? Are they, are they going to be used to interpret individual VUSs as they come off? Or are they going to be used to build machine learning models or lookup tables that allow us to basically look up look something up once it's been seen. What's your thinking on on how that is going to play into the interpretation challenge it that it sounds like we'll have until we have eight billion people sequenced, which is going to be a little while. So I think
1: I think both will happen, but I think we'll have assays that are sufficiently you know, concordant with clinical truth data that we can really trust them and, and will essentially in and of themselves form a lookup table for that gene. I think we'll have other assays that are kind of not as concordant with the clinical data, but will still provide a lot of useful information for training, you know, algorithms that integrate information from different sources, whether it's conservation or functional data. I think so. So from that perspective, I can see those assays that may be less concordant, uh, maybe because they're not in exactly the right cell type or not looking at the right mechanism for disease will still have value in terms of training those algorithms. I think one of the challenges comes when it, when one gets into things like the current guidelines that are used to interpret variants which try to keep functional evidence quite separate from computational right. evidence and if one starts building functional evidence into computational predictors that has the potential to conflict with the way that the guidelines are currently used but those guidelines themselves are are, are still relatively recent and are evolving so I don't see that as a real deal breaker
0: yeah makes sense i think from my perspective you, certainly over the last five years, maybe even longer, have started in your work to bridge the gap between rare disease and common disease. Much of the work I think that's come out of your group in the last couple of years has looked at things that's in, that are in between ultra-rare but inherited loss of function variants in the population, integrating genome-wide association studies with which aren't kind of classically run in rare disease but in a rare disease context. I'm Wondering what you've learned by working at this intersection and what can common disease geneticists, whether they're working on disease or traits, learn from the rare disease world and also vice versa? Are they blending together or are they, or are they still two kind of separate worlds like it feels like they have been for a long period of time?
1: I think, I think they are blending together. I think there's more studies looking at the, the effect of common variants as modifiers of rare disease now. And I think there's more studies of looking at the effect of rare variants and population cohorts now that exome you know, genome sequencing of UK Biobank and other cohorts uh, has come along. We're starting to really, you know, appreciate the the influence of those variants. I think one of the one of the challenges we have sometimes is reconciling the different effects that we see in the, in the context of a population cohort and a patient cohort. So in in a patient cohort, we've ascertained for that clinical phenotype, you tend to. Overestimate the effects of the defect size of, of those damaging variants. And in a population cohort, which is often healthier and wealthier than the general population, you tend to underestimate those effects. And so I think there's the but but what you clearly do see is there are effects in both in both types of cohort. So so really nice work on MC4R, for example, and in obesity in, in UK Biobank, but also in birth cohorts uh, and also in, in clinical cohorts. And I think one of the interesting things with birth cohorts, which have less of the ascertainment bias that's often present in some of the large adult-based cohorts, you see these bigger effect sizes. And so I think there's a one is capable of seeing evidence of association across different types of cohorts. What we really need to do is start bringing them together because many of the undiagnosed patients, I think, in our rare cohorts probably have contributing genetic variants that are incompletely penetrant. And so the evidence that we may get that they're associated with the disease from the patient cohort alone may be weaker, but because they're incompletely penetrant, we're likely to see them at higher frequency in population cohorts. And so by integrating the data from both types of cohorts, we'll start to bring together the evidence about for genetic associations that are maybe not as severe as the ones that we, we're currently looking at. I think the challenge will come clinically about how that information gets used. But I think it, it also gives us other opportunities for thinking about what is the true phenotypic spectrum associated with particular genetic variants and what are the factors that influence that? Because if we're only looking at the patient cohorts, we're often looking you know, potentially looking at the less resilient individuals for whatever reason. Uh, in the population cohort, we may be looking at the more resilient individuals. And if we have enough information about those individuals, we might be able to understand what factors are the key factors that mean that. Those variants are having less effect in those individuals and how many of the what, what would be those modifiable and what can we learn from that in terms of putting you know, in terms of the patient context? Uh, and one of the things that I think is really interesting when one thinks about neurodevelopment uh, of children, as, as, as we you know, do a lot, is, is clearly there are you know, important you know, social and environmental and demographic factors that influence child neurodevelopmental outcomes. That are often being considered very separately from from the genetic factors Uh, and i think there's although it's an area that has to be handled very carefully i think we'll get the fullest understanding of of those factors when we start to integrate those societal and and environmental factors along with the genetics and i think the the work that we're doing in collaboration with many of the uk birth cohorts at the moment is 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 going to be fascinating in that regard
0: what what are the largest birth cohorts it's it seems like from my from my perspective there was a big heyday of many birth cohorts maybe 10 20 years ago that are yielding enormous results today but then somehow in the last 10 years birth cohorts maybe went out of fashion or or there was a a, a period in between and now we've really kickstarted the newborn screening discussion around the world is is that right or are there some at scale birth cohorts that have been just going quietly for Many years that just aren't really on my radar.
1: Well, I think the birth cohorts. I mean, it, it's, it's not a very good reason, but but I think birth cohorts fundamentally are are attract less funding from industry than adult cohorts for common disease. Right. And so whereas the you know the large adult cohorts have been attracted industry funding for exome and genome sequencing, and so they've been managed to move into the rare variant space. That hasn't been so easy for birth cohorts. And that's part of the reason why we've, we've kind of really started working very much more closely with ALSPAC and Born in Bradford and the Millennium Cohort Study in the UK, because we think there's real value of integrating the, the rare variant data. They've certainly contributed majorly in, in terms of common variant analysis, it's been wonderful work in you know, the early growth consortia and understanding child development from a more common variant polygenic kind of perspective. Lots of really interesting kind of findings from, from that that the birth cohorts have contributed to. Um, but I would argue we haven't really yet made the most of the incredibly rich longitudinal data that they've yeah. collected in terms of the neurodevelopment over time and how that relates to the biological, social, environmental factors. And that's the thing that I'm really kind of excited to, to learn more about.
0: Yeah, I agree. I wonder if there's an an interesting consortium of rare disease, you know, pediatric rare disease focused industry companies that might have more of an interest and focus in that sort of thing. Because it, it does make sense the industry dynamic, and and probably it's also something to advocate to government associated funds. This is exactly where they should be deployed, right into things like this that have a longer time frame of yielding societal value, but will over that time frame.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think one of the challenges we have is, that, is the, the answer to the question, what would you do if you knew that you had this genetic risk very early on? So, so you know, most of the, you know, the, the median age of children that we diagnose in the DDD study is six, but those are potentially conditions that could have been diagnosed much earlier. And then the question is, well, what can you do about it? And the, and the, the question is also, what could you have done about it had you known age zero? yeah and that that's where we've got a bit of a chicken and the egg problem because we're not diagnosing children early there isn't the kind of you know potentially we're missing the window of opportunity where one could have assessed interventions yeah. and we we somehow find our way out of this 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 kind of negative chicken and egg situation and i think the newborn screening studies that are that are aligned with research potentially give us a route to do that
0: yes and i feel like the the ever decreasing cost of sequencing and some of the renewed competition is 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 continuing to drive that discussion at some point it's gonna it's gonna just make financial sense that why why wouldn't you do it if we can sort out the IT challenges and and some of the others so I think that's a tailwind that I feel like the industry has but it hasn't come down maybe as fast in the last couple of years as the modeling in the 2010s might have predicted
1: yeah I, th- I think with the new technologies and I'm really excited by them you know they They potentially hit an inflection point because they bring the cost of genome sequencing below the cost of phlebotomy.
0: Yes. And that's already happening for everybody, right? So you can just hitch a ride on on the phlebotomy that's already happening in the in the healthcare system.
1: I'm going back to your kind of your earlier question about what do human geneticists do. I think one of the the, one of the key things that human geneticists do is is team up with the other genomicists working on the dynamic omics. Because if we're really interested in predicting outcomes, you know, any one lens be it proteomics, methylation, transcriptomics, genetics, will only ever have part of the information in it. Uh, and so, so I, I definitely see that future as being more multiomic than it is currently and, and very much partnering with healthcare systems who, yeah. who have the clinical outcome data, who have the, the relationship of trust with the, with the patients and participants.
0: Yeah. When, I think one of the interesting things from my perspective is a prior to the, the large scale data custodian effect that you've outlined groups like the UK biobank prior to that era, many of the impactful research that was put out was, was put out by groups that had some privileged access to data sets. And it seems like it's completely flipped now where it's really about the idea and execution of the idea. Everybody has access to the same data sets in the form of the UK Biobank and others. And really the the more impactful papers come from smart scientists applying an interesting idea and executing on it where the data is available to everyone. And it made me think of there was a piece of advice that you gave me during my PhD, which was to focus on a problem where the whether the answer was yes or no, it was still going to be an interesting one. And I, I thought I, I always give that re give that advice to other PhD students and postdocs because I think it I think it's generically useful advice. But the What I took from it was, if you're going to be scientifically rigorous, then if what you're pursuing is only interesting, if the answer is yes, then you're always going to be in this trap where you're trying you're trying to make the answer say yes, no matter what the the data says. But actually, if the answer to your question is interesting, whether it's yes or no. And in in my case, I was working on non-coding variation. I think that the the result that the primary result that we had was kind of a negative one where the answer was, we looked at a lot of non-coding regions and we didn't find too much in the rare developmental disorder cohort. But that was interesting in and of itself, because whether whether it was a lot or whether it was very few patients that had their disease, their family's disease caused or significantly contributed, that was interesting to know either way. And I, I was wondering if you have another in, any other sets of frameworks for picking what you focus your time on, because in a world of enormous multiomic data sets, there's probably no shortage of ideas around what you could do, but actually many of those ideas are are probably already being done by someone else or may not be your, you know, specifically the thing that you're best at. So I'm curious how you think and advise the people you work with on where they focus their energies and what they work on.
1: Right. So I guess early on in my career I kind of thought of a Venn diagram with three circles on it. And and one of the circles is is things I could potentially be interested in which turns out to be a vast universe of things, <laughs> probably for most people. There's things that will be useful for society, and there's, the, there's things that you can realistically get paid to do for a reasonable period of time. And my feeling was to kind of sit in that intersection, given that I could be interested in almost anything, you know, to, to, to be maybe slightly more strategic than what, what I chose to be interested in.
0: Yeah. That reminds me of there's a I think it's a Japanese concept of ikigai. There's a there's a fourth Venn diagram on that, which is what you're good at. But <laughs> when you're applying that to a research question, where do you take each of those into account? Because presumably you're interested in it, and 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 you can execute on it, or or you're you know you're able to get paid because it's it's what you're doing. Does it come down to whether you're you know uniquely able to add value, and there's nobody else you know that that you know of who you think could equally solve that same problem or how how do you think about it
1: yeah i think there's yeah so certainly that advice is very generic advice and and i think for for us at sanger it's it's it is definitely thinking about that question what's the unique thing that that we can add to this that's really going to move things you know above, you know, above and beyond where where it's at currently and that that's definitely that you know we feel that responsibility we're very lucky to be funded incredibly well by the welcome trust and uh, but but uh, but we have to be tackling these big challenges where where it's very hard to tackle by others so that's that's definitely a lens uh, and as i get older i definitely have a, a kind of a, an added kind of waiting factor which is kind of i get to work with people i like yes that might, that might just be a luxury of, of you know where i've got to in my career thus far but uh, but i do you know fundamentally science is a team thing and when you're working on a project with people that you like it's much more enjoyable than when you're not
0: yeah completely agree you've recently been named the director of the Welcome Sanger Institute i think it was for the record an excellent choice on their part you mentioned your broad scientific curiosity and i think that's that's such an important thing for the role because the span of the institute is so is so wide um, i'm i know you have not really formally started the role yet and are still kind of shaping your, your priorities. But I'm interested just generally in what are the new areas of science that you're most excited about right now?
1: Yeah, so um, I'm, all of the areas that we currently do, I have to say, are, are all kind of motoring, at, you know, the, whether it's the human cell atlas or its somatic mutations, which is I'm telling out really fascinating, kind of, you know, unexpected findings, or the, the work on the tree of life to sequence all of the species on the planet, ultimately starting with the, the British Isles. You know, they're, they're all, you know, absolutely fascinating to me. And, you know, and we've just gone through a period of the pandemic where the value of genome sequencing for surveilling pathogens. Has, has become you know, incredibly apparent to, to pretty much most people on the planet and the value of working internationally with open data. And uh, the, all of those are kind of key aspects of the way that Sanger does things as well as, as what we do. I am very you know personally very motivated by generating these variant effect maps and I think doing it at a scale that not only solves some key diagnostic problems and inequities, but also moves us from a world where we are kind of describing the genome to uh, and describing genes to where we can predict them. You know, yes. I think ultimately we're going to be engineering biology through the century. And we don't have a predictive understanding of, you know, what effect does this variant have on the way that this gene or this genome operates? And I think we won't, we and, and we can tell we don't have that because the variants of uncertain significance. If we had that predictive, high confidence understanding, there wouldn't be variants of uncertain significance. So I see. I see these kind of, generation of variant effect maps both solving a, a pressing clinical need and also paving the way to actually the long-term future of of designing new biomolecules and getting better biomolecules that that do jobs for society that that you know will change the way that we live
0: yeah fascinating I wanted to ask about AI and machine learning over the last couple of years it's been kind of hard to ignore and I think one of the big at least for me, watershed moments in biology was the release of AlphaFold. And I could see how some of the work that your group was doing and others on trying to understand the impact of rare genetic variants on protein structure and, and shape could be really positively impacted by, by some of these things. What what do you feel about the impact of AlphaFold and other, I, I don't know if ChatGPT or any of those others are having an, an impact yet, but I'm sure you're probably thinking about how does this potential platform, you know, major platform shift towards everything having AI helpers embedded into it change the way that that we work in this field?
1: Yeah, so, I, so I certainly think when it comes to applications and clinical applications, I think AI is going to be super helpful, and especially in terms of democratizing the technology and and allowing it to be picked up and used by by non specialists. I think that 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 that's much more on the application side. I think human genetics has been I would say only modestly impacted by AI up to this point, partly because standard statistical models work pretty well for count data for calling variants. Yeah. I think as soon as we move into a multi-omic world where we're trying to integrate data across different modalities, then I think the value of AI increases substantially. Uh, and I think what we really lack there is the data sets, it's the large-scale data sets that have the genomic profiling and the longitudinal you know, phenotype data and clinical data that allows us to train those algorithms. And I think we as a, as a community and as a society need to be thinking about what could those approaches do for us and how do we bring together the various different assets that we have in society, because it will have to be a, a very much a partnership across them to enable those data sets to come into in existence and be worked on in trustworthy ways that benefit society. I, think I, I do see a big role, but, and I see it much more as we move into these kind of multiple profiling approaches.
0: Yeah, it makes total sense. Well, I know we're up against time. Thank you, Matt. I really appreciate you joining and taking the time to mark this exciting 100-episode milestone.
1: No, and congratulations on, on, on 100 episodes. So I, I'm, I'm delighted to finally be invited. I thought you were avoiding me for a while. And I thought, what, what have I done to offend him? So. No, I I thought
0: I, sh- I thought I should. I realized I should have told you earlier that I was saving you for the 100th episode because I, I wanted my skills to improve a little bit. I didn't want to burn what I knew would be a great guest. This is no offense to any of the first 99 guests. You're all, <laughs> you're all wonderful. But this is, a, this is a very special one for me.
1: Yeah, no, it's special for me too. Thank you so much, Patrick. It's been wonderful to see both Sano grow and 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 you know your and interview skills were good from the outset. So, so I'm very impressed. So there, there's always I, a career there. Should he should he decide to go down that route?
0: Yeah, my wife says I have a face for radio. Well. Yeah. <laughs> good. Thank you everyone for listening. We've made it to 100 episodes. I really appreciate all of the feedback and guest recommendations along the way. If you liked this episode, the thing that I'd appreciate the most is if you share it with a friend or colleague who you think would benefit from Matt's amazing perspective on the field. So thank you everyone for listening and we'll see you next time.